So we're going to take a, a break from our study through the book of Acts. Um, I would hope to return to that when I return from Kenya, Lord willing, in early September. Uh, for today, I would like to share just a, a, not so much a teaching, though I'll be doing some teaching, but this is more of a word of exhortation that I believe the Lord placed on my heart, focused my attention on, uh, I think partly for my own personal benefit and partly for yours. So if you would join me in the book of Revelation, chapter 3. So those who are somewhat familiar with Revelation know that while there's lots and lots of deep and mysterious stuff that has to do with all of the various visions that the Lord gave the Apostle John, in chapters 2 and 3 of the book, it's a little bit different. Focus is a little bit different. It's a sequence of seven letters to seven churches that were in an area known as Asia Minor, close to what we call modern-day Turkey, and those seven churches were along a postal route that were close to where John was incarcerated in a Roman prison on the island of Patmos. And so there would be a, um, there would be a postal ship that would travel back and forth between the, the mainland and the island where John was imprisoned. And he, by the Spirit of God, of course, wrote this letter, the book of Revelation. He uh, sent it by post to each one of these seven churches, and then eventually uh, through them, the letter uh, down through the generations came into our hands as well. But um, these are short letters, these seven letters. They're, they're similar in one sense to all that we normally call the epistles. Those are simply the letters starting from the book of Romans all the way through the book of Jude um, that the Lord stirred various apostles to write, uh, primarily Paul, but you know, John wrote letters, Peter wrote letters, and uh, James and Jude, of course, wrote letters as well. And uh, they're a little bit longer for the most part, you know, some of them uh, significantly long, like Romans. And these are just very short letters. They, none of these letters even um, cover a full chapter in Revelation. But the shortness of the letters doesn't diminish their value and their impact because while the other letters were written by the Lord Jesus through his chosen messenger, in the case of one Paul, and in the case of another Peter, these are letters that were directly written by the Lord Jesus and dictated, in a sense, in the spirit to the Apostle John. And I want to focus our attention this morning just on the last of the sequence of seven letters. It's probably the most well-known of the seven letters. Someday, I've, said, I've been saying this for 20 years, someday I'd like to do a, a detailed study through these seven letters, uh, but I'm going to just focus our attention on a couple of main points from that seventh letter to the Laodiceans. And it starts in Revelation chapter 3, verse 14. Let me just go ahead and read the whole letter. It's four, verses 14 through 22. And I want you to hear it as if the Lord Jesus was speaking to that church in that day. And of course, what we're going to be looking for is um, what would the Lord speak to us as his church today through this communication to that church. Um, the circumstances of that church are not identical to our circumstances. The heart condition of what was going on in the church of Laodicea is not identical to the heart condition of what's currently going on in Tree of Life. But as we'll see at the very end of this letter, the Lord intends for all true churches to hear his message, take it to heart, and then look to him for how his concerns translate to our circumstances in our hearts. Revelation 3.14, to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So, because you were lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I have need, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, 
and naked. I counsel you to buy for me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So as we start this this, uh, consideration of what the Lord wanted to speak and did speak to the Laodiceans, and I just want to emphasize verse 22. And of course, this is how the Lord ended each one of the seven letters to the seven churches. He wanted to make sure that none of the recipient churches viewed this as, this is just a message for you. It has nothing to do with the other churches. There's something that the Lord was speaking to each one of the churches in his message to each one of them. Even though if you read through the seven letters, they're all different and they're all they're all dealing with distinct circumstances and distinct conditions in each one of these seven church locations. But the Lord says, he who has an ear, and he's talking here, of course, about spiritual ears, the ability to listen and hear what the Lord is wanting to speak to our hearts through this message. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So aimed at Laodicea, but ultimately intended to impact all true churches that belong to the Lord. Now, um, there's a couple of things I want us to address before I get into the details of the letter, and that is, first, um, this is a, a letter that is probably, out of these seven letters, it's probably the most commonly and traditionally misunderstood and misinterpreted letter of the seven. Uh, there's lots and lots of misunderstanding in this um, in this letter in terms of how traditionally Christians, pastors, Bible teachers have read it, have understood it, and then tried to apply it with good intentions, but really missing the main points of what the Lord was wanting to communicate. And in order to fully get the point, because we don't want to be, I don't want to be one of those pastors that misses the points as I'm teaching it to you, and I don't want you to be one of those churches that misses the point. I want you to get it. I want you to understand it. I want you to take it to heart, and I want it to change your life just like it's meant to change my life. And that is we have to have some understanding of the, the background, so to speak, the context, what, what was going on in that day, in that age, in that circumstance, in that church. If we don't understand it in that context, we'll completely miss the point, which is what so many have done. So in the church of Laodicea, there were four distinguishing aspects of life in that city. And the Lord chose to take those four distinguishing aspects and to make them part of how he chose to communicate to this particular church that was located in that city. These are characteristic of what life in the city was like, not just life in the church in Laodicea, but life in the city of Laodicea. And the point is, from the Lord's perspective, different nations have and I'm going to say it this way, personifying these groups of people. Different nations have different personalities. And different cities have different personalities. And different families have different personalities. And different individuals have different personalities. So there are things that characterize the city of Laodicea. And because the church that was based there in that city was formed from people that grew up in that city, that lived in that city, that were Laodiceans, they were somewhat affected and influenced by the culture that surrounded them. Just like every single one of us is somewhat 
impacted and affected and influenced by the culture that surrounds us, even to a greater extent than we would want it to influence us. And certainly to a greater extent than the Lord would want the surrounding culture and society to influence us. You understand, and this goes all the way back to our study in the Sermon on the Mount, that the Lord calls his church to be salt in the earth and a light set upon a lampstand which then fills the surrounding area, light in the world. So salt in the earth, light in the world simply means, if you boil it down to its essence, means the church is meant to influence the culture that surrounds us rather than the culture that surrounds us influencing the church. That's our calling. Our calling is to influence everything and everyone out there and to let none of their influence seep into our life. Now, that's a challenging and difficult call, and there is no church in all of church history that has 100% successfully fulfilled that calling. The problem with the Laodiceans was that they had failed somewhat miserably at that call. They were still predominantly influenced by what was going on in the culture around them rather than them having the kind of impact and influence the Lord had called them to have. So here are the four distinguishing characteristics of the city of Laodicea and they were, they were part of church life and church perspective and church attitude as a result. First, Laodicea in this region, it was one of three sister cities in what was known as the Lycus Valley. And in that region, it was by far the wealthiest city. They were economically strong compared to all of the other cities in that area. Second, one of the primary ways that they'd become so wealthy was they produced, they had a a strong fashion industry. They produced a particular kind of cloth, a black, shiny black wool that was in demand throughout the Roman Empire. And it was the only location in the Roman Empire where that could be actually produced because of the, the sheep that lived in that specific valley. So they were able to sell it at exorbitant prices and a huge amount of the city's income came from the fashion industry. Second, or third, they had um, a famous medical school in this city. Not all, not all ancient cities had uh, a medical community, uh, um, you know, a medical school beyond that. And the, um, the school in the city of Laodicea was famous. People came from all over the empire, people that were sick, people that were struggling with their health, people that wanted to be healed, and specifically in two, two areas. They, they, uh, but one that's in focus for this letter, so I'm only going to focus our attention on it, and that is they, they were famous as a medical school for healing eye problems. So they had developed and created a special salve for their eyes that um, was used in healing a variety of different eye problems. And so people, as I said, would come from far and wide in order to have their eyesight uh, healed. The fourth distinguishing feature was not a, uh, it was not a plus in the perspective of the inhabitants of the city. It was a minus, but it was just part of, we have so much going for us here in Laodicea, we have to deal with some of the drawbacks of living in this area. You know how it is, no matter how favorable an area is, like it's just commonly known throughout the world that that where we live in Southern California is a very favorable area to live. Um, There's so many wonderful things about living here from just a practical geographic standpoint, but there's certain problems here, and we share a problem that they had in the city of Laodicea, which was a water shortage issue. So Laodicea had no natural source of water available to it. They had to pipe their water in. And because the Romans were amazing engineers, um, they had constructed an aqueduct and a pipeline that actually uh, carried water because Laodicea was such an important city in the Roman Empire with its economic issues, um, its prosperity. Uh, They piped water into the city. So those are the distinguishing features. It's a a particularly wealthy city. it is a city that produced, or it was a city that produced this special black wool uh, for 
um, garments. And it produced, because of the medical school, a special eye salve. And they had to deal with the issue of um, there's a shortage of water. Uh, just like our city, you know, there's no natural water source here for us. Where do we get our water? It comes from the, the big aqueduct that, that pulls water in from the north in the same kind of way. So those are the four issues that were at stake. Now, the first one having to do with their wealth was such a big issue for the Laodiceans. They were known far and wide throughout the empire for their prosperity. And what had happened in the Laodicean church is they began to view their prosperity along with the rest of the city as a mark or as an evidence, a proof of God's great pleasure in them and with them. Meaning that they, and this was a, this was a, a, a perspective that didn't just trouble the Laodicean church. This is a perspective that Christian churches have had to deal with throughout generations of church history. It's still a, a huge issue in some circles of Christianity today in what is commonly known as the faith teaching or the prosperity gospel churches. And that is the viewpoint that if I have finances and wealth at my disposal, that most certainly is the evidence and the proof that God um, has specially favored me, God especially blessed me, and because he has, therefore, God is especially pleased with me. And so the Lord wanted to address this perspective in the church, and he cho- chose to do so in what I can only describe as a very strong and direct, aimed at their heart, word of rebuke. Now, I'm not sharing this with you this morning because it's in my heart to rebuke you. It's not. I don't have any reason to want to rebuke you this morning. But even in the rebukes that we hear the Lord may direct toward other believers in another time and in another place and circumstance, there are things that we can learn. And the first and foremost thing we can learn is how the Lord evaluates situations that his people are in and that he has provided for his people because the truth is the lord had blessed the laodicean church with wealth and with prosperity and with more than enough finances to meet their personal needs but the problem was since they viewed their prosperity as the evidence of the lord's good pleasure however they had been using their money was also viewed as the lord is pleased with how i'm using all of the money that he's provided for me and they were missing something in the Lord's perspective. And so he chose to address them in this word of rebuke. And the way he chooses to rebuke them is, it's interesting. It's, it's somewhat similar to, do you remember the story of King David and how he sinned with Bathsheba? And he remained in his sin for too long. Um, how long if you sin against the Lord? And I'm not talking about some minor level sin. There are minor level sins, by the way. Some minor level sin. I'm talking about a deep and significant life impacting, family impacting, and in David's case, nation impacting level sin. How long should you remain in a sin once you've committed it and know that you have actually sinned? What's the time limit? (laughs) Yeah, the the idea is as soon as your heart becomes aware that you are actually in sin, and as soon as you become aware that the Lord is convicting your heart of your sin, you are obligated, you are spiritually accountable and responsible to the Lord. You are probably, because sin usually involves other people as well, not always, but oftentimes, you're also obligated to them, but the primary obligation is to get right with the Lord and set matters straight with him. And the only way you can do that, of course, is through a change of heart, what the Lord describes as repentance. And so the, the Laodiceans needed to repent, but I'm using King David as an example because when it when David sinned, he remained in his sin for nearly a year. And this is a man that the Lord had himself described as near and dear to his heart. So a man that the Lord said is, is, is in the likeness of his own heart and was 
prior to this sin living a life that was pleasing to the Lord. And so the Lord, what he did is he sent a prophet to David in his, in his sin, in his rebellion, in the hardness of his mind and his heart. And the prophet was Nathan, and he had Nathan declare a message to David, but he didn't have Nathan just like kick open the, the door of the palace and boldly march in and say, King David, you are in sin, and the Lord is holding you accountable. Do you remember how the Lord had Nathan speak to David? He told him a story. I told him a story about uh, uh, two men and some sheep and one man taking, you know, a, a, a really rich man who owned a lot of sheep, taking one of the sheep of the poor man. And, and you know, at first you're, you're like, as you're reading the story, you're like wondering, why are you talking about sheep when he's committed adultery and, and he's covered his tracks for nearly a year? And it turns out that the Lord is using the analogy of a man owning sheep to describe how David has stolen another man's wife in the sin of of adultery and then had done even worse than that by covering his tracks to arrange for the murder of that man and the story served his purpose the lord got through to david's heart so the lord tells a story here in a sense to um, the laodicean church the story has to do with water now why would the lord choose a water story to address a laodicean church about something that they're missing in their heart's relationship with the Lord. It's because they're a city that is, is living in a circumstance of water problems. And so the Lord chose their circumstance and he chose a way to speak directly to them through this story. And here's the story. Let's look at verse 15. Verse 14, the Lord introduces himself to the church, which is always interesting to me. Why would the Lord need to introduce himself to a church? Shouldn't they already know him? Couldn't he have just said in verse 14, uh, to the angel of the church allowed to see her write, these are the words of Jesus, period. Now let's get to the point. Instead he introduces, and there's a whole reason, I just don't have time to develop all this this morning. He's called the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. All of that really dovetails toward where the Lord is wanting to address their hearts. But in verse 15, this is what he has to say to them. And this is the story relating to water that he wanted them to hear. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you were lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Now, the Lord, you notice this, the Lord never says the word water in this story that he tells them. Why not? He knows they'll immediately understand that he's talking about water. And the closest he gets is at the very end where he talks about spitting them out of his mouth. But what he wants them to say, because he doesn't say in, in verse 16, So because you were lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit the water out of my mouth. What he says is I will spit you out of my mouth. So the point that he's making, the reason he doesn't use the word water is he wants them to get you are the water in this story. You're the water. And there's a water issue in the city. So there's a you issue in the city. Now, what was the issue? I mentioned that there were three sister cities in this Lycus Valley. There's this city, which is Laodicea. There's the city of Hierapolis and the city of Colossae. We're most familiar with the city of Colossae because that's the letter that Paul's, the church that Paul sent the letter to the Colossians to that church. They're all three close to each other within a few miles. They're, they're all within the range of what we would call the size of the San Fernando Valley. It would be like here we're located in Northridge. One of the others of the three is in Woodland Hills and one of the other is in Burbank. It's a little bit further away, but it's, you know, it's within fairly easy traveling distance. The difference between the three cities was this. The other two cities had a natural water source. Hierapolis had its own water. Colossae had its own water. Laodicea had no water. So where would they get their water? From the other cities. Primarily, they got their water from the city of Hierapolis. Now, Hierapolis was on a higher elevation, and so water 
would flow down from Hierapolis and the Romans then made this pipeline, this aqueduct that carried the water from Hierapolis, Hierapolis excuse me, down to the city of Laodicea. What was known and famous, there was something famous about the water in Colossae and there was something famous about the water in Hierapolis. The Hierapolis water was hot water. It came right out of the earth, hot. We would call it in in our descriptions, a hot mineral spring. How many of you have ever visited, I know the freezer fans of the one that's up uh, near San Luis Obispo. How many of you have ever been to a hot mineral spring? It's awesome when the, the water's coming right out of the earth at bath temperature. And you can, you know, sometimes it's a little bit too hot, so you gotta test it before you just jump in. But uh, you get into that water, and why do you get in that water? You're not getting in that water to drink it. Why are you getting in that water? It feels good, but I'll say more than just the temporary feeling, it's still to this day commonly held by many people, and they've had a shared experience of this. It, it has a healing benefit. You, if, you, if you rest in hot mineral water, there's just something that happens between your body and the water that's beneficial to your health. And so people will come from far and wide in order to go and sit in hot mineral springs and to gain the full benefit. Some of it's from the heat of the water and some of it's from the mineral content in the water. But something happens where people gain health benefit from that. That's what was happening in Hierapolis. So now the water is flowing by Roman aqueduct from Hierapolis down to Laodicea. It starts, it comes out of the earth in Hierapolis hot. And now it travels a few miles through the aqueduct to Laodicea. What temperature is it by the time it gets to Laodicea? It was lukewarm. And because it's now lukewarm, if you went to a hot mineral springs, and I would recommend that you might do this the next time you travel to a hot mineral springs, take some kind of container with you. Take just a small amount out of the hot springs and set it aside. Now, would you travel from far and wide to a cool or a lukewarm mineral springs? There may still be some benefit, but there's something about sitting in the water while it's hot, while it has that high mineral content. The combination of both aspects, both elements, are what produce the health benefit. You can sit in lukewarm mineral water and it doesn't do the same thing for you as hot mineral water. And so when the water got to Laodicea, and they did use it, but it was lukewarm by the time that it arrived. Now the other town, Colossae, also was famous for its springs, but they had the exact opposite kind of springs. They had cold spring mountain water coming right out of the earth, right in their town. And it was known far and wide for its refreshing purposes and that was the a number one i don't even know anymore back in the old days i could have told you but what what's the best bottled water nowadays okay you i heard 17 different things and so you know you whatever is best for you think of the classy water like that the best clear pure cold drinking water now, if the, the people in Laodicea had, and there wasn't a pipeline from Colossae to Laodicea, it was, just, it, it was just too difficult because it wasn't a higher elevation. It was actually a lower elevation than Laodicea. But if they had gone to Colossae and shipped the water from Colossae to Laodicea, they didn't have, just so you know for certainty, they didn't have refrigerated trucks in those days. So if they got that cold Colossi water to Laodicea, how would it arrive when it finally reached Laodicea? Luke warm. You could still drink it, but it wouldn't have the same refreshing aspect and the same refreshing element. Now, why have I gone into all that background? Because this is, this imagery that the Lord spoke to the church is one of the most commonly misunderstood and misapplied concepts in scripture. And that is, Christians have traditionally taken this to describe the the emotional condition of their heart in their relationship with the Lord. Like the Lord is speaking to the church and saying, you know what, you used to be on fire for me. You used to be red hot in your love for me and your love for me has grown cold. 
I really wish you could like, stir your heart up and become as hot for me in a good sense, in a in a, a fervent sense of devotion for me as it was in the old days or in the beginning of your walk with me. Is that what the Lord is saying? Is that what he's addressing? And the answer is no. Look at verse 15, how the Lord starts this story when he's talking about the waters. And he wants to, the loud seeds to see, you are the waters. He says in verse 15, I know your, what? Your works. Not your emotions, not your heart, not your attitude, not, not what's going on in secret in your heart, in your relationship with the Lord. I know your works. What are your works? It's what you do, and in this context, what you do in your service to the Lord. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. So it does speak to hearts, but it's hearts that produce a certain kind of work in service to the Lord. I know your works, and your works are not coming from a cold place. Your works are not coming from a hot place. And then this line, you are neither cold nor hot, would that you were either cold or hot. So in the traditional reading of this passage, the conclusion is the Lord is really saying to them, I don't want you to be cold. I don't even want you to be lukewarm. I want you to be hot. But that's not what he actually says at all. He doesn't say, I don't want you to be cold. He says, I wish that you were either hot or cold. I just don't want you to be lukewarm. And that's what you actually are. So, in the Lord's perspective, and that's the only one that matters, of course, in his evaluation, it would have been beneficial if they were hot Christians, and it would have been beneficial if they were cold Christians. And I know we have this natural tendency to say, I I don't want to be a cold Christian. The, The Lord Jesus says, be a cold Christian. He's not talking about heart attitude toward him. He's not talking about like when we, when we say someone's cold in a relationship, what are we normally describing? They're distant. They're, they don't care anymore. They've, they've lost their interest in the relationship. They're, they've turned, a, we call it a cold shoulder toward the other person. That's not what the Lord is talking about. I want you to be cold. Why? What was cold? The water was cold. Where? In Colossae. What, what does that mean? It's, it's, you take a drink and you walk away. Oh, I've just been refreshed. He wanted his people to be such a quality and kind of people, spiritually speaking, that when they came into contact with any of the members of the Laodicean church, they could have this refreshing experience in their own hearts from that brief interaction with those Laodicean Christians. But the Laodiceans weren't refreshing anyone other than themselves because they were rich prosperous and felt like they everything was just fine and the lord was most certainly pleased with them because of all of their prosperity being the proof of his good pleasure with them he also said to them i wish that you were hot what was what 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 was hot and where was it hot it was hot in hierapolis And that has nothing to do with being refreshed, but it has to do with being restored and renewed and healed when you most need it, when you are hurting and when you need that kind of hot mineral kind of soaking experience. He wanted anyone that came into interaction with one of the believers in Laodicea to have that kind of healing influence upon their broken life circumstance. And the Lord's point was, I don't care if you're going to be a refreshing believer or you're going to be a healing and restorative believer in your impact on others. Have an impact. The thing is, though, you're not either one. You're lukewarm like the water of your city, which means what that equals is you are currently good for nothing. Not good for nothing in their practical, natural, physical lives. They were prosperous. Things were going their way. The problem was they weren't having the kind of spiritual impact and influence 
that the Lord was calling them to have and that he intended that they have. They were useful, but they were useful to themselves and not so nearly useful to the Lord and his kingdom purposes. So he says, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you were lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. So the waters that came from Hierapolis, which were the actual waters of the city, they had cooled down from their hot mineral spring. By the time they reached the city, you could drink it, but it wasn't very palatable. And a lot of people, when they were first learning how to drink the water in Laodicea, would get sick. Like if you move from another area, it was pretty typical to have an experience of, uh, you know, your stomach being a little bothered by the water you just drank, and you just drank some water, and here it comes back. And that's what the Lord says. His is interesting. The Lord Jesus says that's His experience in His interaction with the Laodicean church. Listen, the last thing I ever want for the Lord's evaluation for us as a body is for him to come and take a deep drink of our gatherings and to walk out of the room and um, return what he's uh, had to drink of our fellowship. So he goes on to say in verse 17, for you say, and I want you to notice that little word at the beginning of verse 17, F-O-R, it connects... What he's just been talking about, this story about the water situation in the city, but now spiritually applied to their real life circumstances. And he says, this is the connection for this is what you've been saying about yourself. This is the internal dialogue you've been having. And in their fellowship with each other, this is what they've been sharing with one another. For you say, I am rich. I have prospered. Now, is that true? Yes. Not spiritually, physically, naturally. They were financially wealthy people, richer than most churches. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. And then these fateful words, not realizing. You know, the worst place you can get to as as a believer is to have a problem and not realize you have a problem. For the Lord to have it... For the Lord to have an issue with you and you not realize that the Lord has an issue with you. Not realizing. And then here the Lord, of course, is faithful to point out that he has an issue with them. Not realizing that you are, this is their true spiritual condition in the Lord's perspective. You are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Then verse 18 how can we fix it? They didn't ask the question, but the Lord is going to answer the unasked question. How do we fix the issue that the Lord has with us? Here's the Lord's answer. I counsel you, and I don't know if you're one to underline in your Bible, but if you are, I would underline those three words. I counsel you. Now, Uh, You know that I do biblical counseling. Jay does biblical counseling. David does biblical counseling. We have a few others that that, uh, do biblical counseling in our fellowship. And I've had a lot of experience in practice, so to speak, in serving the Lord in biblical counseling. I've been biblically counseling folks for over 30 years now. And I'm pretty good at it by the grace of God pretty good. I'm not great, but I'm pretty good at it. But there are times that I just don't counsel exactly what should be counseled. There are times that, you know, maybe too much of my ideas are mixed in with the Lord's ideas. And so, you know, you can't rely on my counsel 100%. But when the Lord counsels you, this is counsel that you ignore and disregard at your own peril. And it's just interesting that the Lord phrases it as, I counsel you. You know, he's the Lord, right? So he doesn't need to counsel his people. What could he have done instead? I command you. He's the Lord. He speaks, and if he speaks a word of command, we're accountable to it. He could hold us directly and immediately accountable to it. And then he could bring 
innumerable consequences upon our heads if we disregard it. But I just see the graciousness of the Lord here. The graciousness of the Lord. I counsel you. He wants them to understand. Hey, you're living a lot, you're living your lives based on a certain perspective, and it's the wrong one. You've missed the right perspective. And I have a different perspective, and here I'm going to share with you my perspective. And when we say counsel, what we mean is give good advice. To, to shift someone's thinking from one perspective to another perspective. And so that's what the Lord does here for the church in Laodicea. I counsel you. And then he goes back to storytelling. His counsel is storytelling. What I mean by that is he uses symbols and imagery to, to reach their heart. He paints a picture with his words. What's the first thing he counsels them? Remember, this is the wealthiest city in this area. I counsel you to make a purchase. What should you purchase? Like if, if you ask me today, I mean just on a natural level, just natural advice, nothing to do with any spiritual wisdom, just natural advice. We're living in a, an, an up, upheaving economy. You can't count on this economy right now. Does anyone believe you can count on the economy right now with what's going on? You cannot count on this economy. So if you came to me for just natural advice, say, I've got a little bit of money. What should I invest in? What should I, what should I buy? I would tell you, buy gold or buy silver. Buy, buy something that has enduring value that doesn't go up and down in the same way that less enduring things do. And so the Lord gives them some economic advice. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich. Remember, they thought we are rich, we're prosperous, we don't need anything. And he says, you don't even realize that you are poor. You are poorer than poor. You have nothing of any value in my sight. But I want you to have something of value in my sight. So I counsel you to buy gold refined by fire. Now, I'm not going to take you to the passages that prove the point. I'm just going to say to you what he's talking about is not real gold. He's not saying go out and buy some physical metal. The Lord in multiple places refers to his words as more valuable than gold. And he refers to true faith as more valuable than gold. Gold that's even refined in the fire. So I think that's what he's directing them to. Don't be so focused on your natural resources. Be more focused on your spiritual resources that you don't currently possess, but you should. And they're available to you. They're there. All you have to do is buy them. Now, these are the Lord's resources. How do you buy the Lord's resources? You know, you can't, you can't pay him anything that will, that will complete the transaction other than paying attention other than giving your heart's concern to the things that the Lord says are truly valuable. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich. And interestingly here, what were they famous for in the fashion industry? Black wool garments. And so he uses that exact imagery but just flips the script on them. And he says, and buy from me because remember, the buy from me about the gold now applies to everything that he's talking about. This is the Lord's store. It's better than Amazon. More extensive than Amazon. Better quality goods than Amazon. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so you may be rich and white garments. Why white garments? You, you know, the... the all the way through scripture and later in the book of Revelation the white garments are the righteous what? the righteous deeds of the saints the righteous works of the saints start doing the things that I've called you to do I've assigned for you to do and you, you will have truly fashionable garments spiritually fashionable so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. The implication of that is if you, are, if you do not have a record of God-assigned good works to your name, you are walking around spiritually naked and you have no idea that you are. Anyone ever had a dream where you were walking around in public naked? 
I'm, I'd, li- I'm, I'd like to see the show of hands on this one. I've had, I've had that dream three or four times in my life. You know, I'm just out in public, you know, and I didn't put any pants on. And, I, you know, I'm just going around, and I, I suddenly re- look down and realize, oh, that's what he's talking about here. If you don't have the garments of the righteous deeds of the saints that are characterized by true followers of the Lord that, that are credited in the Lord's evaluation to your name, you're walking around naked and you don't even realize that you are. And last, and salve to anoint your eyes. What was the other thing that the city was famous for? The, the medical school that had developed this special eye salve. The Lord is saying here, using their exact circumstances to say, um, you know, you think you see, but you, you, you're actually, he had told them right up above, you're actually blind. So you need my salve to heal your eyes so that you may see. And here, the clear implication is see from his perspective. See through his eyes rather than the natural perspective that they had been living their life by. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. This is probably the least popular verse in the New Testament. Those whom I love, I reprove. That means to address in a direct way their heart, to bring their heart to conviction where their heart is missing the Lord's concerns for them. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. That means I turn them over my knee and I give them what they need to receive from me, which is pain. Pain that arrests their heart's attention and gets them to rethink their actions and their priorities. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, and this verse 20 now is the second most commonly misunderstood and misapplied portion of this letter. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. This is the Lord Jesus himself standing at some unnamed door and knocking. You know, the Lord is the Lord again. If he wanted to, one lordly kick and that door would be crashing open. But he doesn't kick this door down. He stands at it and he knocks. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him. Eating with him is a signification of fellowship. Close, connected, heart-to-heart fellowship. And he with me. Now, this has traditionally been taken as uh, there was a famous painting that was painted back a couple of hundred years ago, and it's titled, it shows Jesus standing or a representation of Jesus standing at a house door and knocking on it. And the painting is titled, Jesus knocking on the door of the sinner's heart. Good intentions, but it's taken as the Lord is speaking this to unbelievers. He is not speaking this to unbelievers. He's speaking this to a church. So we have doors on the church. Right now they're closed. They're not locked. But just imagine the scenario is, This letter is being read on a Sunday morning in a building to a church of people that apparently belong to the Lord. And the Lord is saying to them at the end of the letter, oh, by the way, just so you know, I'm standing right outside the door of the church and I'm knocking on the door, which implies what? He's not in the church. He's outside the church. Does the Lord belong outside a church that belongs to him? The answer is, that's the worst scenario for a church that names the name of the Lord, to be on the opposite side of a door from the Lord himself. He stands at the door and he knocks. He's hoping that the church will be paying attention for the Lord to get their attention through that knock. And if they do, people from inside that church should be rushing the door in order to open it and to welcome the unwelcomed one into their fellowship. How in the world could the Lord be unwelcomed in his own church? And yet this was the circumstance for the Laodiceans. 
And he tells them, if you will open, I will come in and I'll sit down and I'll share fellowship with you. But now we're talking about fellowship in the context of works that have been transformed from their lives being filled with works that are just for their own benefit, for their own pleasure, for their own usefulness, to works, their lives being filled with works that are truly pleasing to the Lord and that are serving his kingdom purpose. And then the letter ends with what I'm going to call the greatest promise in the New Testament. I mean, how many promises are in the New Testament? And how many wonderful, I mean, Peter refers to them as the great and precious promises. I think, this is my humble opinion, I think this is the greatest one of all of them. And he saves it for the worst church. Now, that just tells me, again, how gracious is the Lord. That he's still holding out the hope for this level of relationship that he's about to describe in this promise. The one who conquers, what he's talking about is conquering all of the external influences of the culture, the society, and the city in which they live, and becoming an influence rather than being influenced. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. Can you imagine entering heaven and not just being impressed with the throne, but being invited by the Lord, come up here, I want you to sit with me on his seat. That's the imagery. That's what he wants them to consider. I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. You've heard me teach this before. There, there's not two central thrones in heaven. The big one where the father sits and the little one where Jesus sits at his right hand, right? It doesn't work that way. The right hand is just imagery to describe for us that the son still submits to the father. But in terms of the throne, there's only one in the center of heaven. And the father sits on that throne, spiritually speaking, and the son, when he conquered, sat down with the father on the father's throne. And now we're being invited, along with the Laodiceans, if we respond in the way that he calls them to respond, to sit down with him on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word to the Laodicean church, and thank you for speaking to our hearts through it. Uh, There are many things I know that you want to apply to many hearts here today. It's your work. It's your word. It's your good pleasure. Please do so, Lord. Uh, May there not be a single one of us, Lord, that fails to gain the benefit of what the Spirit is saying to the churches. We thank you for that grace. In the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. God bless you.